Hello and welcome to Fabula Celtica, a Celtic Studies podcast with Tyler Baxter and Kevin Collins. Series 1, Ancient Ireland. Episode 1, The First Takings of Ireland. Wouldst thou know of the adventure of Kesser in the land of Ireland? A prophet of God and his messenger said unto Noah, son of Lamech, Make thee an ark of light timbers, for a flood shall come and shall submerge every living thing, save only thee and thy wife and thy sons and the wives of thy sons. And I, said Bith, what shall I do? It is not permitted to me, said Noah, for the greatness of thy sinfulness to suffer thee into the ark. And I, said Fenton, grandson of Lamech, what shall I do? I have no power, said Noah. I, said Laudra, what shall I do? I have no power, said Noah. This ship is no ship of robbers and no den of thieves. Thereafter, Bith and Ladra and Fintan came to consult together, and they said, What shall we do for that council? For it is final that a flood shall come, and how shall we make us ready for it? Easy, said Kesser, daughter of Bith. Give submission to me, and I shall give you a manner of counsel. They agreed. Then take to yourselves an idol, said Kesser. Worship it, and sunder you from the god of Noah. So they took a god unto themselves, and this is the counsel that it gave them. Make ye a voyage, and embark upon the sea. But they knew not, nor did their god know, when the flood should come. Accordingly, what they did was to make their ark, and to go into it, seven years and three months before the coming of the flood. So, Kevin, you grew up in a good Christian country. Uh, what biblical reference were, was just implied in that, uh, that little extract? That was a, a lovely retelling of Noah's Ark. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and uh, this uh, extract comes from um, a translation by R.A.S. McAllister of a text called the Lever Gavala Aaron. Um, or in English, it's usually translated as the Book of Invasions um, or... Uh, More literally, it would be the Book of the Takings of Ireland. And uh, this extract comes from uh, the tale of Kesser, who is supposed to be the leader of the very first group of people to come to Ireland, uh, according to to this mythological legendary narrative, um, which clearly ties in to the whole idea of the Bible. Uh, But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. I think we should uh, introduce uh, ourselves and and introduce this podcast. Um, Since this is the first episode, we don't want people to be too confused about what's going on. Um, So uh, my name is Tyler Baxter. Uh, I hold a Master in Celtic Studies from the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, as well as a postgraduate diploma in Ancient and Medieval Languages from uh, University College Cork. Um, and we are actually here based in Cork in Ireland. You can tell that I am not from Ireland, uh, but, but Kevin is. Uh, Kevin, do you want to introduce yourself? My name's Kevin Collins. I'm going to be co-hosting this with Tyler. I'm going to be asking the appropriate questions. A lot of this material is new to me. Hopefully the questions I ask will help shape the direction of the conversation and provide a direction that is going to be more accessible for the common average listener. Uh, where do you hail from in the States? Yes, uh, I'm from Seattle originally, so uh, pretty much exactly the same weather. Um, and uh, I've been only in Ireland for uh, about a year and a half now, um, but I, I've been having a great time. Oh, well, your English is great for only being here for a year and a half. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I wish my Irish was better, uh, but my old Irish isn't too bad. Oh, it's probably better than most uh, most uh, <laughs> Irish people. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but uh, your your role here is... is uh, more important than um, you might think, Kevin, uh, because you have the Irish accent to authenticate uh, what I am saying. Um, And uh, you also are going to be taking care of the tech side of things, which uh, I'm very grateful for. And moreover than just having the Irish accent, I have the the Cork accent as well, which is obviously the pinnacle of any Irish accent. It certainly beats a Dublin accent at the very least. Uh, No offense to, to any Dubliners listening in. 
Tyler, please, uh, from the hook that you were talking, tell us a bit more about the tales of Kesser. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, this this podcast, uh, Fabula Celtica, is a, a general Celtic studies podcast. But in this very first series, uh, what I want to do is um, use some material, recycle some material that I've used in courses that I teach um, to talk about ancient Ireland uh, generally. And uh, each uh, episode more or less is going to uh, include some amount of mythology that helps frame the history that we'll then discuss and tie into that. Uh, so again, uh, as I was saying, the tale of Kesser comes from the Lever Gavala Aaron, the Book of the Takings of Ireland, which is a combination of prose and verse, uh, mostly in, in Irish, uh, well, medieval Irish, old and middle Irish, uh, with some bits of Latin here and there. What, uh, where, where does that date from? Uh, as with many of our, our old uh, preserved tales, uh, this has come down to us in several manuscripts of various dates. Uh, but the oldest that we have um, is from the Book of Leinster, which is dated to circa 1160. Uh, that being said, uh, on account of how sort of uh, manuscript culture works, which we'll talk about in a future episode, but uh, the, the very short version of it is, is that uh, the very first uh, version of this gets written down at some point, and then it gets copied, and it gets copied, and it gets copied. And so what we have remaining may not be the earliest copy around. It's very likely, especially based on um, things like the uh, particular forms of the, the language, um, that this is an older tale than 1160. In any case, uh, what the Lever Gavala Aaron er, alleges to, to, to tell us is the uh, quote-unquote history of Ireland from biblical creation through six different uh, takings or invasions. Uh, and it also comes in several uh, what we call redactions, which are basically major variants of the story. Um, but uh, even among those those different re redactions, they're, they're not too different from each other. So I'm really just going to sort of mush them into one and call that the tale. The, the six takings of Ireland, um, the ones I'd be familiar with, I guess, would be the British... Right, right. That would be that would be the seventh, really. I guess. Seventh. Okay. So uh, this the, is the Normans. All, this is all pre pre. Yeah, I guess it's pre Norman. Um. So so I guess the Normans would be seventh, and the British would be eighth. Um. Oh, and so who were the original six? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so the first is um is Kesser, uh. But uh, I I do want to before we we get into her, I just really quickly want to quiz you. Um. So you you knew Noah's flood, um. What other major stories are you aware of from the book of Genesis? Are there, are there any that come to mind if I ask you that? Really? Um, other tales from the book of Genesis. Honestly, Tyler, I went to a Protestant primary school. Um, we did separate catechism lessons afterwards, which I had to stay back for. But um, I guess perhaps because those happened at 3 p.m. and everyone had went home already, I didn't pay too much attention. Um, so my knowledge of the book of Genesis is remarkably poor. That's that's okay. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, probably going to be something that you will recognize when I when I list off these these tales. Um, have you heard of uh, uh, two two folks called uh, Adam and Eve? Yes. Yes. Okay. So there's one. It's the Garden of Eden is is probably the biggest um, book of Genesis tale, uh, and we will be circling back to that in a future episode. Um, uh, another really important one, besides the tale of Noah, um, which, which we just had, uh, is um, uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, or the Tower of Nimrod, as it is sometimes uh, called, um, which uh, was a, a tower that was built up to the heavens, uh, and then uh, God wasn't too happy about this, so he sent the tower crashing down and um, caused uh, the confusion of tongues, which, which created the, the many different languages of the world, so people could no longer understand one another and could no longer collaborate on, on such a project heaven uh, that challenged this, heaven. In this sense, heaven existed in the clouds. Uh, yes, yes, uh, indeed. Um, and uh, uh, heaven's actually a very interesting topic as well, uh, but we might get to that in a future series. Do you believe in heaven? Um, I am uh, uh, agnostic, so I'm rather ambivalent about it. I'm more academically interested in the stories about it than in its reality uh, or lack thereof. Very, very eloquent. So um, 
just uh, for for listeners, uh, I, I do recommend that uh, if you are not uh, familiar with some basics of the the Bible, that you do familiarize yourself a little bit with um, the Garden of Eden, Eden story, uh, the Tower of Babel story, and Noah's flood, because those uh, are going to come up, and I will briefly summarize them when when we get to them in um, this and future episodes. Uh, but uh, I won't go into them in any detail. I'm going to assume that people who are listening in have uh, the basic knowledge of those tales. So if you don't, uh, that's your homework. They all have this mention in the book of the takings of Kesser. Yes. And yes. so they are tied back in some way to Irish mythology. Yeah, basically the the Levergavla or the Book of Invasions um, tr- wants to describe all of Irish history um, up until the coming of the ancestors of the Irish. Um, so, uh, returning to the the tale of Kesser now, is it like uh, you know? Is it the Bible through the lens of Ireland? Uh, kind of, yeah. It's. Um, I mean, really, the the Book of Genesis retelling is really not with much variation. Um, except for that we do get some new characters sort of invented that are not necessarily in the biblical canon. Uh, so, for instance, um, Kesser is the granddaughter of Lamech, uh, who is given as the, the father of, of Noah. Um, and uh, Lamech is given another, uh, or pardon, she's the, the great uh, granddaughter of, of Lamech. And um, Lamech is given a great-grandson named Fintan, who is definitely not a biblical character, but uh, is going to be um, a very significant character in several Irish stories. So you just, Um, Fintan definitely sounds like it's not something from the original Bible canon. No, (laughs) no. And um, also, uh, we are told that Noah has a son named Bith, uh, who is definitely not in the original Bible, and Bith is the father of Kesser. Kesser also not in the original Bible. So it's it's sort of a fan fiction, I suppose, of the Bible, uh, is, is how you could nice. think of it, uh, and a fan fiction with an Irish focus. Lovely. Excellent. Yes. Um, so uh, in, in this tale, um, there's actually a couple of explanations for why Kesser comes to Ireland. Um, but uh, one, one is what I read at the beginning of the uh, episode, which is that Basically, Noah was allowed to take certain family members with him, but he couldn't take others, and he couldn't take non-family. And so he told his son, Bith, sorry, you can't come with me. Uh, And his granddaughter, Kesser, sorry, you can't come with me. Uh, And his, uh, I guess, uh, well, it would be Kesser's second cousin, uh, Fintan, also is is discounted. And then this other guy (laughs) who's not even related to them. Um, but it's described as a, a pilot of like a ship, not an airplane, um, named uh, Lothra. And um, so there's these three men, there's Kesser, and uh, the three men are like, what are we going to do? This flood's coming, we're all going to die. Kesser says, take this pagan idol and listen to its advice. And so they do, and the, the pagan idol tells them to go to Ireland. What's, a, what's the pagan idol? Well, it's uh, not really well described. It's just Kesser says ignore noah's god listen to this thing and it's sort of implied that it's some sort of you know statue or carving or something perhaps that that speaks to them um and uh, perhaps uh from a biblical perspective it might be glossed as a as a demon um or or you know it's it's some lesser god of some kind um but but this thing tells them to go to ireland uh but earlier in um the the text um, we're given a slightly different explanation uh, we're told quote and again this is from McAllister's translation um, this is this volume two uh, and he says quote Kesser came thereafter from the island of Merrow fleeing from the flood for she thought it probable that a place where men had never come till then where no evil nor sin had been committed and which was free from the reptiles and monsters of the world that such a place would be exempt from the flood uh, and her wizards, which uh, the, the word used is druidy, so druids, um, indeed told her that Ireland was in that case uh, and that on account of that she should come to Ireland, wherefore Kesser arrived in search of Ireland. So this other explanation that's, that's actually earlier in the text 
is that um, Ireland is free from sin because no people have ever been on it before. It's a place without any reptiles, you know, famously without snakes. Um, uh, and so maybe because it's this sort of unblemished land, this will be safe and exempt. Um, so sort of two different explanations all within a single tale. Uh, what happens is that Kesser uh, gathers up 49 other women and these three men, her father Bith, uh, her second cousin Fintan, and the pilot Lothra. Uh, and they all uh, create their own ship and they head off far into the west, into Ireland. And uh, when they arrive... Where did they are originate from? They come originally from um, Kush, uh, which is in modern Sudan. Oh, okay. Uh, so they they have quite the journey, especially um, when we're talking about you know uh, pre a lot of a lot of rowing, uh, yeah, or probably sailing. I would I would presume, but uh, their their ship is described at one point as a canoe. Uh, this group of, of fifty women, including Kesser, three men, um, uh, managed to get to Ireland, uh, and the men uh, divide the women up among them, um, and because there's fifty of them, they don't divide perfectly by three. Uh, so Bith, Kesser's father, gets um, 17 of the women. Um, Fintan, uh, Kesser's second cousin, uh, gets another 17, including Kesser herself, um, who he is described as marrying. Uh, and uh, Lothra gets the short end of the stick and only gets 16. Um, but apparently uh, this is, is even too excessive for Lothra because we are told, quote, Lothra the pilot from whom Ard Lodren is named. He is the first dead man of Ireland before the flood. He died of excess of women. Or it is the shaft of the oar that penetrated his buttock. <laughs> Whatever way it was, however, that Lodra is the first dead man of Ireland. And Was it the women or the oar? Um, well, I, I, I personally like to think of it as the women using the oar. Ah. Um, you know, uh, apparently Lothra was into some stuff and, uh, he wasn't actually up for, for, uh, the full experience. Oh, he got shafted. He literally got shafted. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, uh. Bith also dies uh, and also gets a, a place named for him, um, but we're not entirely sure how he dies. It just says he dies. And uh, Fintan, uh, for unexplained reasons, decides to sort of just uh, leave um, the, the women and go off on his own and uh, basically take refuge in a cave. And the flood comes and kills everyone besides him. All those poor women. Yep, all those poor women. Uh, the, the two men who, who die, die before the flood, uh, and then all those women get wiped out. Um, Is there an uplifting moral to this story? Well, uh, I, I guess uh, for Fintan on his part, uh, he manages to live for, for centuries after this. Um, not always in human form. He seems to uh, reincarnate into different animal forms um, until eventually uh, in a human form again uh, sometime down the road. And we'll talk about this story a little later. Do you but, believe uh, in reincarnation? <laughs> it's a great topic uh, as far as the cults are concerned and whether they believed in reincarnation. Um, so I'm going to save that conversation for, for when we get to it. Uh, but the, the short end uh, version of this story is, is that Fintan... Uh, survives long enough through these various forms to pass on his knowledge of Ireland's legendary history to the newly Christianized Irish. Um, and so that's theoretically how we have the Lever Gavala in the first place is through Fintan's knowledge. It's like everybody dies, Fintan lives. Mm -hmm. um, is there more to be taken away from that? Well, uh, I think one thing that's interesting about this story is that the leader is said to be Kesser. Um, she is, uh, of course, a woman, uh, and she's really the only woman leader of any of these six invasions that I mentioned. Um, so I think that part is interesting, uh, and there is um, some... some uh, I, th I believe, uh, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, that uh, some versions of the tale say that she was either called Kesser or Bamba. Um, and Bamba is the name of one of the uh, sort of personifications of Ireland uh, later on in the Lever Gavala. Um, so I guess keep that in the back of your mind that perhaps Kesser uh, didn't so much die as sort of 
reincarnate herself as a personification of Ireland, who is pretty much always depicted uh, when she is personified as female. The second taking of Ireland is by uh, this man named Partholone and his followers. Um, and this happens about 300 years, uh, according to the lover Gavala, after uh, Kessler's taking um, and subsequent uh, wiping out. Um, so uh, Ireland has been left unpopulated, with the exception of Fintan Macbolcra, that one man who survived. Um, uh, but we're also told that uh, Partholone, just like uh, Kessler before him, is a descendant of Noah. Um, he is of Noah's ancestry. Um, though I suppose this makes sense, considering that uh, Noah is uh, and his family are the, the only real survivors of the flood. Um, but uh, there's there's sort of this theme of the takers of Ireland being consistently descended from Noah, and and that being a point that's made in the text. Um, in in any case, uh, shortly after Partholone's arrival from Greece with his his children and his followers, um, they encounter a group of other people, uh, or not really quite people. Um, they're, they're called the Fovera, uh, or in English it's often uh, the Fomorians. And uh, they're described as men with single legs and single arms. Uh, so they're sort of these, these monstrous creatures, apparently. Um, I, I can't imagine that they had a great time getting around with only a single leg. Mm, bad balance. Yeah, but uh, they, they are, are hostile um, to Partholone uh, and his people. So uh, <coughs> they, they have a battle, uh, and this is described as being the first battle of, in Ireland. But uh, Partholone uh, and his, his people win, uh, and they drive the, the Fovera away. Um, now, it's not entirely clear... Uh, what the origins of the Fovara are, but they're, they're sort of in other stories, um, and to some extent here, consistently described as coming from or across the sea, so possibly even coming from under the sea. Um, so they could be thought of as, as um, some sort of offshore raiders, perhaps, uh, is the best way to think of them. Um, and uh, it's also possible uh, that they weren't actually one-armed and one-legged because we get... Uh, in other texts um, from from Ireland, descriptions of magic being used by standing on one leg and putting one arm behind your back uh, and, and usually also closing one eye. Um, so, for instance, this happens um, in uh, the Second Battle of Magturith, uh, which we'll be getting to later in the series, when uh, the god Lu or Lug uses one one leg, one one hand, uh, one eye, uh, and and basically casts some um, sort of buffing spells on on uh, his his allies, and this is this great war uh, and to make them stronger. The enemy in this first battle are described as the one armed, like out of the fugitive, right? The one armed bandit. But yes. <laughs> um, does the anchor to that say that they're magical beings that they were battling with? Or is there any other extrapolation of that description? I think I think there's two possible ways it can be interpreted. One is that they are this is a magical battle. They are using magic against Partholone's people, uh, but Partholone and his people still win. Uh, the other possibility is that they are in fact misshapen, sort of humanoids. Um, that and that's just the nature of this race. Um, we will be encountering the Fovra again and again. Uh, throughout this series and, and probably in future series uh, when we return to, to Irish um, stories. Uh, and it's inconsistent in how they're described. Sometimes they seem to be just regular humanoids, regular people even, um, and other times they are given an explicitly monstrous description. So it's, it's very inconsistent. Um, in any case, so uh, Parthon's people managed to, to drive the Fovera off, uh, and the sort of main um, uh, bulk of, of the story of Parthon otherwise is about how they shape the land, him and his children and, and uh, his, his followers. Uh, it's described that there are seven lake bursts during his time, so sort of spontaneous eruptions of, of new lakes on the landscape. Um, they clear 
four large planes of, of the trees and such that would have originally been there, um, including one called Magturith, uh, which is the site of a couple famous mythological battles um, that we'll be talking about in the future. Does that exist today somewhere? Uh, there are, there, yes, uh, it is. Uh, there's sort of actually two locations where the two different battles of Magturith happened, um, but uh, they're both... Uh, Kind of in northern Connacht or western Ulster or somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but but I have I have the notes for it when we get to it. So we're, we're talking over like Donegal, Sligo, yeah, somewhere in that region. Cool. I, I think I think actually right in Sligo. And now that you're you're saying that um, is is where the first battle of Magturith happened, and then the other one's a little bit more northwest to that. So they do this land shaping um, while they're there, uh, and. Then all of them die of plague. Oh, shoot. Except for Tuin McCarroll. Uh, and um, uh, we will also return to Tuin later, but uh, this is going to sound really familiar. Tuin survives for hundreds of years by turning into different animals whenever he gets too old. And then eventually, when he is human again, he passes on his knowledge of Ireland's legendary history to the new Christianized Irish. They, they're recycling some plot elements here from the various takings. Yeah, and, and uh, there's, there's a lot of speculation about this. Um, I, the, the main theory that uh, I have heard um, is that uh, the Tuan story is actually older, uh, and then the idea was recycled uh, to create Fintan because Tuan wasn't there quite early enough. Um, since uh, he wasn't there for Kessler's taking, they needed someone to, to do that instead. Uh-huh. Uh, so Fintan was, was created. Um, though I would say that uh, Fintan is, is a slightly better known character nowadays um, among modern um, Celtic enthusiasts. And if I were to guess about the, the third taking, does it involve the majority of the stories, people dying at the end somehow? Uh, it, it, it does, um, though the third taking, it, there is a slight difference um, with uh, the survivors, plural, um, and uh, they, they are not people who go on to live hundreds of years later. Uh, something else happens with them. But we'll, we'll save that for the next episode. Is there a reason that um, there is like a mass exodus of life at the end of the takings? Um, I mean, I think partly uh, on account of, of the convenience of the storytelling, uh, they, they need Ireland clear for the next group to come in. I see, yes. Um, but uh, I, I think there's some really nice... They worked in the, in the market for a crossover. Right, right. I, I, but I think there are some really nice parallels, um, perhaps more coincidentally than intentionally, um, but there are some nice parallels with the actual history of Ireland's earliest inhabitants that we're going to tie in kind of from this point forward. The The first point to make uh, has to do with the story of Partholone. Um, and we are told in that story that he gives um, sort of the the uh, control of, of Ireland to four of his sons and each of them get essentially a quarter of the island. Uh, and this seems to perhaps foreshadow the idea of Ireland being split into four provinces as it is in modern day. Um, we have Ulster in the north, Munster where we are in the south, Connacht in the west, and Leinster in the east. There's no faulting your geography. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, when we get to actual county by county, uh, it might be a little bit less uh, uh, precise. That's okay. Nobody knows where Carlo is. Oh, grand. I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone. It's just in a, in a void of some kind. Uh, in any case, uh, for, for future reference for people, um, uh, the the uh, old Irish terms for these provinces may occasionally come out, and I'll try to remember to, to, say, the, uh, to say both. Um, but uh, Ulster in, in Old Irish is Ulith, uh, yes, which is also the um, word used to describe Ulster men. So if I say the Ulith, um, I'm talking about the men of Ulster. Um, Connacht, uh, we have the Connacta, um, and Connacht for the, the province. It's that one straightforward. Uh, Leinster is Lion, uh, and Munster is Mother or Muffin. Um, but uh, it's it's really Ulster that's probably going to come up with that the most, um, and then then perhaps Connacht a little bit. Um, 
so so there's one tie-in is is this idea of provinces but of course the the provinces as they are today didn't develop for quite a long while in fact during the the medieval period um the the divisions were were much messier than than a nice even four division but it's it's a kind of nice little point to start with kevin uh if i talk about the the different archaeological periods um, talking about the different names for different ages uh, in the prehistoric period. Do you, are you familiar with any of those? Does anything come to mind? I mean, the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. There you go. That's that's it. Um, what's the actual order of those, though? Is that the order? Uh, no, it would be Stone, mm-hmm. then Bronze, yep. then Iron, yep. then... Ooh medieval yes good and that's as far as we need to go um yes exactly uh and the stone age can be sort of subdivided into two um, pieces at least as far as as ireland is concerned we have the mesolithic and the neolithic um and uh meso uh, means middle uh and lithic means stone so the middle stone age uh and then the neolithic would be of course the new stone age and uh in Europe in general, um, the continental Europe, uh, the Mesolithic period started around 12,000 BCE. Uh, well, in Ireland, it took a while to, for anyone to get here. So the very first evidence we have of people in Ireland uh, dates the, the first Irish um, settlers to about 8,000 BCE, about 10,000 years ago. When you add the E onto BC there, what's that? Uh, yeah, so... Um, uh, you can either say BC before Christ, AD, um, Anno Domini, uh, which is sort of the old standard. Um, people have, in the past couple of decades, I'd say, started transitioning to using BCE and CE, which is just sort of takes the um, religious element out of it. Uh, BCE means before the Common Era, and CE would be the Common Era. It's more more secular. Yes, yeah. Um, so I tend to use those, uh, but if I'm I'm quoting or if I'm not really thinking about it, and I you know maybe copy pasted something into my notes with AD and BC, I might say those. Um, so what was what was AD replaced with? Sorry, uh, CE, Common C-E, Era, Common Era. Okay, yes, yes. BCE and CE. Yep, yep. So um, so the Mesolithic is uh, again in Ireland. It starts about four thousand years after it begins in Europe. Uh, and it lasts about 4,000 years in Ireland. And this is a period primarily marked by uh, cultures that are, are hunter-gatherers. Um, there's no agriculture taking place. It's purely subsistence on the landscape in its sort of natural state. Um, and any sort of settlements would have usually been sort of nomadic temporary settlements that might be set up seasonally. Um, uh, if I know, are these Neanderthals? They're not like Homo sapiens as we're no, familiar these with would, today. Uh, I, I am not sure. I think these would be Homo sapiens. Um, I, I think the Neanderthals are already uh, gone by this point. Um, but, but possibly a mix of both. Um, but I think Homo sapiens is what we're primarily talking about. Um, yeah, definitely uh, send, in, send in your comments or whatever to correct me, folks. Uh, so just to give the broad outline, that's the Mesolithic, so about 8,000 to 4,000 BCE. Uh, then we go into the Neolithic, uh, which in Europe begins around 7,000 BCE and lasts to about the year 4,000, which is when Ireland is just leaving the, the Mesolithic. Um, in Ireland, uh, which is constantly lagging behind, largely because of that geographical divide, I would say, um, we're, we're talking about 4,000 to 2,500 BCE, roughly. Um, and this is primarily marked by the development of agriculture, is the, the huge difference um, from the Mesolithic period. Uh, and this is going to tie into Partholone's land shaping uh, that, that comes up in that story. And then um, after that, we'll get into the Bronze Age, which we'll talk about in a, a future episode. But we're talking roughly 2000 to 750 BCE in Ireland for that, when um, the earliest um, use of, of bronze in on the island begins. Um, so we'll, we'll be getting to that uh, next episode, I think. So as far as Mes- Mesolithic Ireland, Middle Stone Age Ireland, uh, we really don't have a lot of archaeological uh, evidence, but we do have a couple of sites um, that are, are fairly significant. Um, one is Mount Sandal in County Derry up north, uh, and it is the remains of a uh, what seems to have been a seasonal campsite uh, for these hunter-gatherer people. Um, the, the main thing that's left over there is um, 
like uh, holes where, where posts for the temporary dellings would have been put into, um, and and then the remains of things that they ate, um, which is a lot of uh, fish um, and then some animal products. So a lot of fish skeletons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. And it's it's near water. Um, it's near near where they could be getting oh, fishing. The, the things that people will be more familiar with would be things like um, you know Newgrange. Uh, Yes. Where does that where does that tie the in? Neolithic. That's so more, we're so that's um, after. Yeah, this. yeah. I, I actually misspoke about the Bronze Age. That's that's two episodes from now. Um, next episode, we're going to actually look at Newgrange very specifically and that whole complex. Um, so that that is Neolithic period, though. Um, the uh, other site uh, besides Mount Sandal is um, in County Limerick, not too terribly far from us here in Cork. Um, it's at a place called Hermitage, uh, and it's the earliest Irish burial that we are aware of uh, that has been uncovered up to this point. So um, there were found there uh, cremated bones that have been carefully arranged in pits. Um, they were very thoroughly burned, uh, and the remains were not always interred in their entirety, suggesting um, that uh, perhaps some of them were taken as mementos or, or buried in another location. Who knows? Um, uh, additional artifacts at the site include a, a stone axe that was found and um, a post. And is Hermitage, you know, preserved for people to visit to see this? Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'm sure that the artifacts are, are in a museum somewhere, I would assume. Okay, Indiana Jones. Um, but, uh... That belongs in a museum. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, yes, indeed, <laughs> of course. Uh, I mean, they aren't going to just put it back in the ground, are they? Uh, but uh, that's that's really all we have for the Mesolithic as far as, as archaeological sites. There's, there's not a lot. Uh, you know, was Hermitage just stumbled upon? Because finding cremated bones in the ground seems like quite <laughs> fortuitous. Um, I'm not sure the specific story for this, but if I had to guess, I would say it was a farmer. Um, came across them by, by chance, because that's what happens a lot. So, so uh, I, I am not sure on the history of that. But um, as, as far as Mesolithic finds in general, um, kind of, you know, you get random bits here and there. Uh, it's mainly uh, small flint tools uh, that are formed into sharp little artifacts. They're called um, microliths or small stones, literally. Um, but that's the, the formal term for these tools. Um, and no one's been able to figure out where the first Mesolithic settlers to Ireland originally came from. Obviously, they aren't going to just spontaneously appear on the island, um, so they had to have come from somewhere. Have you a, a guess or a theory? Well, I do have a favorite theory, oh. and it ties into the story of Kesser. Please, please. Okay, so one hypothesis is that uh, the people who first came to Ireland weren't from Sudan, uh, that's, that's a ways off, but were from the nearby Isle of Man and came because they were forced to by um, the end of the Ice Age causing uh, sea level rise. And so this displaced people and some of them came to Ireland. Uh, and that sort of ties in with the idea of a flood being what forced the people of the first taking of Ireland in the Levergavala to come to the island. Mm-hmm. So, Very good. Yes, nice little tie in there. Um, and uh, there's also in, in Celtic uh, mythology in general, and I should really clarify what I say I mean when I say Celtic, um, just for uh, future reference, I'm generally using a linguistic definition for this, which is people who spoke Celtic languages um, or currently speak them. But um, in in Celtic mythology in in general, uh, if we go over to Wales, for instance, um, there is a story uh, called the Inundation of Gwela that ties into um, the the uh, sort of legend of of the famous Welsh bard Taliesin. Um, but uh, it's basically described the creation of current day Cardigan Bay as as um, being from a flood that overtook what was once a, a lush landscape and very rich kingdom. Um, in uh, Cornwall, uh, modern-day Cornwall, uh, off of Land's End, there was supposed to used to be a, a land called Lyoness, uh, which is where Sir Tristan from the Tristan and Isolde Arthurian stories was supposed to hail from. 
and uh, in Brittany in modern day France, um, there was a, a place known as Caris or the city of Is. Uh, that was supposedly flooded um, when uh, a floodgate was was uh, left open at an inopportune time. So uh, there are lots of flood stories in general in Celtic mythology, and Kessler is just one of the many. Were these floods quite violent and sudden affairs? They were in general, yeah. And and I suppose as far as the Mesolithic movement, it probably was not that sudden. Um, but uh, gradual uh, sea level rise is, is still a, a very... Um, uh, dangerous thing uh, in the long term and, and would force people to move. So um, that's that's what I have as far as Mesolithic Ireland. Uh, it's, it's not much, but that's what we have to go on. Moving into the Neolithic period, uh, this ties in well with the story of Partholone and the idea of shaping the land. Um, the idea of where Partholone's people cleared these different plains in particular. Um, so this is when the first uh, or the idea of farming comes to Ireland likely with a group of people who know how to farm rather than just the knowledge coming over. Um, but uh, farming starts to happen, which means that the Irish landscape has to has to change. And what, uh, what were we farming? Uh, there's uh, evidence from things like uh, pollen cores or peat cores uh, with pollen samples from those those peat cores that uh, give us a pretty good idea of some of the things that were that were growing at the time and in what prevalence. Just one example of, of a crop that would have been grown is um, emmer wheat, but there, there would have been other things. Um, there still would have been some amount of um, gathering of things that naturally grew in the landscape, such as berries and nuts. Um, and the early domestication of animals would have included cows, sheep, and goats. Would they have roamed freely up till this point? Um, we we have a, a site that actually shows that at least in this site in particular, um, they actually created uh, little farm plots with with walls and everything. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, um, but uh, I'll I'll just kind of finish this overview and then we'll look at a couple of specifics. Um, so. Some consequences of the beginning of farming um, are that you no longer have to be um, nomadic. So we start seeing some permanent settlements. Small, very small scale, but permanent settlements. Um, we have evidence of fairly large rectangular houses. Um, we have evidence of the introduction of pottery into Ireland for the first time. There is a dramatic increase in population as there is more f food security. And we can kind of surmise that perhaps the earlier hunter-gatherer peoples um, end up absorbing into the Neolithic peoples who have come in with their, their farming, this, this new technology. But uh, it's not entirely clear how, how these people came together, whether it was friendly or not. Where was the conflict? Or the question We don't know conflict. if there's a conflict. So, so basically, the, the Neolithic people... Um, were probably not the same people as the hunter-gatherers who were here earlier. Um, farming is, is not going to just be communicated by a few people sailing by on a ship. It's going to be people coming in with that knowledge, with the animals, with the know-how to make the equipment, and so on. Um, so chances are there were interactions between the earlier hunter-gatherers and this new influx of people, but exactly what those interactions are like, we don't really know. In, in any case, um, the uh, Neolithic um, arrived about the same time in, in Britain, uh, and there's evidence of close contact between the two islands uh, at that point in time with trade and, and so on. So uh, I'm going to read a little extract from a wonderful book from a Cork local, uh, not Cork City, but uh, he's out in West Cork um, on the Barra Peninsula. Um, and a man named Owen Dalton. Very beautiful part of the world. Yes, yes. Um, and he has a particularly beautiful uh, home that he lives in. He's a, a activist for the idea of uh, rewilding, um, which is uh, letting the landscape come back naturally with minimal human intervention as opposed to planting actively. He has this wonderful uh, book called An Irish Atlantic Rainforest that was just published last year. Um, about his, his sort of journey to, to discovering this idea of rewilding and about how he has been rewilding um, his current um, plot of land uh, on the Barra Peninsula um, and 
recreating a um, native Irish rainforest, uh, which is a temperate rainforest. Most people think of rainforest as tropical, but uh, the natural state of Ireland before people came in and started messing with things was that the island would have been about 80% temperate rainforest. Wow. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is about uh, that kind of transformation of the landscape from early on. So uh, Owen says, As with the rest of Ireland, most of the peninsula, and he's talking about Barra Peninsula here, was once mantled in rich, thick, old-growth forest, inhabited by wolves, bears, and many other wild species. The first people to enter the environment were almost certainly small groups of hunter-gatherers who would have been present or visited in pre-agricultural times prior to 4000 BC. Archaeologists now believe these nomadic peoples altered Irish wild wooded landscapes far more substantially than previously thought, often managing wild resources in ways that blur the distinction with actual farming. At Mount Gabriel on the Mizan Peninsula to the south of Barra, for example, there are signs of strong periodic woodland disturbance from around 6400 BC. The first evidence of actual human settlement in Barra dates to the Neolithic period, with a significant site at Cashelkilty, less than 10 kilometers to the east of Bothical, which is the, the name of the woods that uh, Owen has taken over, um, lasting from roughly 3900 to 2900 BC. These were the first real farmers, with a culture heavily based on cattle, and they initially cleared patches of land of its cover of forest using slash and burn, still a common practice in the tropics, and ring barking, um, which is when you strip the bark from all around the circumference of a tree, um, and that kills the tree because it's the bark that, that causes the nutrients to be delivered up the tree, not the, not the inner wood. Uh, the effect of livestock in preventing the regeneration of trees is also likely to have played a decisive role in transforming initially isolated fragments of land into a more open state. Uh, condensed down, the evidence for prehistoric bear clearly shows an ebb and flow dynamic between people and wild forests that continued over thousands of years, a pattern that echoes other parts of Ireland. The Bari's pollen record indicates enormous pulses of woodland clearance around 1350 BC, 800 BC, 500 BC, 250 BC, AD 700, and AD 1700, each of which was later followed by its extensive return, bar the last. However, the overall trend has been a downward one throughout. Each time they contracted, the forests were replaced by pasture, highlighted in the pollen record by a corresponding spike in grasses, along with some minor level of cereal growing. Without the protection afforded by trees, nutrients were leached away by rainwater, as well as being lost from the soil in the food produced by people. They wouldn't have been sufficiently replaced by the small amounts of manure generated by livestock or the spreading of seaweed as a fertilizer. The final phase of each cycle was then an almost complete collapse of the conditions necessary to survive as the environment became increasingly degraded, followed by human abandonment. So there's, what he's saying is that there's this, this sort of recurring pattern, and we can imagine this happening throughout Ireland, uh, not just at the Barra Peninsula, um, where farming comes in, they farm for a good long while, the soil gets depleted, people leave because they can't grow food anymore, slowly the land comes back, uh, and with it, the nutrients come back, people move in and clear the land again. Mm -hmm. But in general, tree cover falls and falls and falls to the point where we're at today, where only about 1% of the landscape is still native forest. Very sad. Yeah, it is. It is quite sad. Um, it's People think of Ireland as this, this lovely green, lush country. But once you realize that all that lovely green is grass it's and green, nothing else <laughs> a, green, a green desert yes it is a green desert in in large spaces just in terms of what own is doing with rewilding i assume does that just mean you have to leave it alone yes pretty much um the the main bit of maintenance that is required though is uh dealing with invasive species so um owen uh uh, managed to get some funding to put up a fence to keep out all the uh, deer and the feral goats that were formerly plaguing the property before he, he acquired it. Uh, and um, he also uh, regularly has to go out and um, uproot rhododendron and, and other invasive plants. So um, one, one uh, other consequence of um, farming is actually something that is uh, part of the reason that we have as much rich archaeological um, evidence as we do in Ireland, which is the formation of peat bogs. And uh, a lot of these are a consequence 
of the land clearing that was done back in prehistoric times. Um, sometimes when the, the land is cleared, uh, because uh, the, the land can then absorb more water, you know, the trees aren't, aren't messing with water absorption, that sort of thing, you can get um, uh, these bogs starting to form, and it's in bogs that we have a lot of uh, the, the nicely preserved artifacts uh, that tell us so much about Ireland's history. Uh, one example is uh, a, a really, really quite amazing complex um, that uh, was discovered in County Mayo uh, called the Caja Fields. And um, these are among the oldest um, known uh, farming sites uh, that have been found uh, in the world, um, dated to about 3700 BCE. And um, it's also one of the largest early farming sites that we are uh, aware of, uh, measuring about five square miles um, from what have so far been uncovered and it could extend further. What's, what's there, if you, if you look at it today, there is a visitor center there, um, if anyone wants to go visit, and it is right near a very dramatic um, cliff face, uh, beautiful coast. The Cage of Fields in County Mayo. Yes, yes, it's a C-E-I-D-E is, is the spelling there. Um, in the in the show notes, I'll, I'll link some um, a YouTube video that, that can give you an idea of what it looks like. Just to, to read a little section from a um, an article on worldhistory.org uh, slash Kaja underscore fields uh, written by Jenny Snook. Uh, she says, quote, the land was intensively farmed for approximately 500 years, circa 3700 BCE to circa 3200 BCE. Residents were probably forced to leave due to bog formation, and there are several theories as to why it first started to form. As trees pull water out of the ground through their roots, emitting it out through their leaves, one effect of cutting them down is an increase in water entering the soil. When the ground is very wet, dead plants are more likely to pile up, forming peat. Climate change is another theory. We know that 5,000 to 6,000 years ago, temperatures on the northern hemisphere were higher recognized today as being caused by slow changes in the Earth's orbit. When temperatures later began to fall, there was also an increase in the level of rainfall, making it less likely that the soil would dry out and encouraging the growth of peat. It is not known when these bogs began to form, but it seems that the people in the community were forced to leave. One theory is that the prolonged use of the land led to soil impoverishment, but it is likely due to the development of these bogs that they had no other choice but to move." End quote. They didn't know to use it as a fuel. <laughs> yes, I guess at this time, turf, turf uh, burning had not yet quite taken off. Um, or, or perhaps it had, but because they couldn't grow food, it, it didn't matter too much if they had heat. Mm. Um, so uh, in any case, it's, it's, uh, from an archaeological point of view, it is, it is a truly amazing site. And the, the last uh, thing that I want to uh, bring up about the Neolithic period, and something we'll expand on more in the next episode, is the megalithic tombs um, and there we have that lithic word again so megalithic just means big rock uh, big stone uh, so the big stone tombs and uh, the most famous of these today i would say are the um the well is the the passage tomb at newgrange and uh nowth and douth which are are nearby uh but there were other types of tombs besides passage the, the cairns tombs. cairns yes yes so um so there were really four kind of major types of uh, what we call we call tumuli. This is a burial mound. Okay, four four major types of burial mounds. Um, one of them is called a court tomb. Uh, these are the earliest types of tombs that we have, uh, and they date back as far as 3900 BC, and were built for about 400 years, so until about 3500 BC. Uh, and the the basic idea of a court tomb is if you can imagine in your mind a mound and then sort of cut out a u-shaped uh, indent from one side of the mound and, and take that off and put the entrance um, into a tomb sort of at the the closed end of the u the closed end yeah so the open part of the u is it's going to be outside of the tomb and it's this little courtyard area essentially that's why it's called a court tomb uh, and then within the mound itself is where the the tomb would be um, so you go, you go through the court, you enter the tomb, and then you, there could be one or more um, chambers uh, in, nested inside uh, that, that mound. Uh, were they all the for, for burial? 
this seems to be the case, yeah. Uh, there, there may have been additional um, ceremonial purposes for these sites, but uh, they, they were certainly pretty much all used for burial as far as I'm aware. And at this time, would they have had structures to live in as well or just structures to die in? They, they would have had structures to live in. So this is the same period in which we're seeing those, the evidence of, of houses and so on, um, though in very small settlements um, compared to what we would think of today. So that's, uh, that's sort of the earliest type of tomb. Um, then we have the, the passage tombs, uh, which we'll focus on next episode, so I won't say too much about them now. But uh, the earliest passage tomb is dated about 3750 BCE. Uh, and these are built pretty much through the whole Neolithic period, so until about 2500 BCE. Um, and so they have got great longevity. Um, and uh, these are, are defined by essentially they're a mound with a passage into it. And that passage can be quite short or quite long. Um, but uh, at the end of the passage, there is some sort of larger chamber, usually with several recesses. Um, and, and we'll talk more about that in detail in the next episode. Uh, the last two types um, are geographically very, very separate. Uh, the, the other two types of tombs are um, from more of the late Neolithic period. Uh, one is a, known as a portal tomb or a dolmen. And uh, I'm sure most people have, have seen examples of these, uh, you know, on TV, on the internet, or in person before. But they're, they're those things that basically look like a, a giant stone table. Yes. And you've got... There's a, a very lovely one down by Skull, um, just after Skull. Okay. I, yeah, I haven't seen that yet. So you'll have to, you'll have to take me some time. Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> in any case, uh, a, a, so a, a portal tumor, a dolmen... Um, it's basically uh, constructed from uh, a few upright, upright stone slabs uh, topped with a horizontal stone, stone slab. Uh, so Was it done predominantly with just manual labor, right? I mean, because the, the, they seem quite heavy. I mean, it must take a significant amount of manpower to... Yeah, I, there could have been perhaps some use of, of um, uh, oxen or something to that they somehow engineered a, a way to do it, but... Um, I, I would assume. I mean, most most portal tombs um, are not are not massive, um, but uh, certainly with with something like uh, Newgrange, which again next episode. But uh, the stones were were of a size enough that they certainly would have had to find means other than just pure manpower to to move those. Uh, we're not really entirely sure what the methodology was. These portal tombs. Uh, generally wouldn't have looked like they do today. They actually would usually have been covered with um, a, a mound uh, of earth that over time degraded with the lovely Irish, Irish weather, uh, all that rain eventually wiping the, the earth away and just leaving sort of the skeleton of the tomb behind. The idea of a cairn, it's the same thing as a tumulus, um, except for it's with stones. And a lot of the time these two things come together, uh, the, the tomb would be built with sort of its large rocks that form the main structure. Then you would put a cairn on top of that. So you would put small stones on top of that as a mound. And then on top of those small stones, you would put earth, um, soil, and turf. Uh, so, so you could have a, a layering of all three. And sometimes uh, the, the earth wears away, sometimes the, the cairn stones um, are not used, and so you just get the, the sort of table structure. These portal tombs were mostly in the north of Ireland, uh, where in the southwest, um, so in County Cork, for instance, we would get what are called wedge tombs, uh, and they, they pretty much are what they sound like. They're a wedge-shaped tomb. The entrance would be sort of on the thick part of the wedge, and then it sort of slopes down to the ground, uh, and, and there would be a chamber inside. You could think of it like um, one of those tents where the entrance is easy enough to get into, but your feet um, are, are squeezed down in this little bit of the tent as it slopes down. Um, you can think of it maybe like that. And have like archaeologists like extracted skeleton from uh, these? In, in some cases, in a lot of cases, because of the um, the uh, the wearing away of the outer mound, um, the whatever was inside is exposed to the elements and 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 is lost before we get to this point in time. Um, but there, there have been some remains found in, in some of the better preserved tombs. Uh, and we will be talking about um, just a tiny bit about that uh, when we talk about things that were found in the, in the Newgrange complex. These are kind of the, the main things that we, we know about the 
earliest peoples of Ireland. We have those hunter-gatherers about 10,000 years ago, an eventual transition to farming, which comes with major landscape transformations, and we have tombs. And so in the next episode, we are going to talk about the Bruna Boina complex, um, or the Valley of the Boyne, um, the Boyne River. Uh, we'll talk about Newgrange, and we'll talk about the very rich mythology associated with that site and how that mythology ties into the Neolithic archaeology um, and Neolithic architecture of the Passage Tomb. Thank you for listening to Fabula Celtica with Tyler Baxter and Kevin Collins. Please rate and subscribe and follow us at Fabula Celtica on Twitter, Instagram, or email us at fabulaceltica at gmail.com.